nine in the NFL was a topsy-turvy affair with quite a bit of action, a lot of unexpected results uh, across the league. And the Inside the Pylon podcast is here, as always, to break down the week in action as well as look ahead to what we are looking forward to in Week 10. I can tell you there's not a ton we're looking forward to in Week 10, actually, but I am joined, as always, by Mark Schofield from InsideThePylon.com. And Mark, big, busy weekend, and uh, one of our undefeateds has fallen now down to three undefeated teams in the NFL. Yep, that's right. We only get three left. Um, you know, Denver, um, kind of interesting to see them lose kind of the way they did going into Indianapolis with, you know, a Colts team that made the decision to change offensive coordinators this week and seems to have paid off for them. But, yeah, you know, now we're down to three undefeated. What stuck out for you this week? Uh, well, aside from uh, neither Adele nor Taylor Swift uh, responding to us on Twitter, which – I'm not giving up hope. I mean, this is no. just kind of like that time in high school where there was that girl that you really liked and you kept asking her out, and eventually you figured that you would wear her down and she'd say yes. That's kind of where I'm at right now. Right. I mean, it's, it's slightly different because unless there's somebody you haven't told us, man, I don't know if that girl in high school had, what, 50 million t- followers on Twitter? Yeah, she was Taylor Swift. Oh, well, then now you're yeah. I stand corrected. <laughs> Doubtful. I, even if I did go to high school with Taylor Swift, probably would not have paid attention to me then. And uh, certainly I know you haven't heard anything from Adele. We do have a I new have wrinkle not. that we've added in here. Actually, two new wrinkles. Uh, one is our producer, Tucker, uh, is going to – what is it? If we can get Meatloaf to uh, – Meatloaf. Yeah, if we, if, if, if we get Meatloaf to uh, retweet something, Tucker is going to uh, do uh, one of Meatloaf's songs. And if we can't get anyone by the end of the season, Mark and I are going to do a duet of Aerosmith's Don't Want to Miss a Thing, which typically kicks off uh, every one of our shows. So no matter what, you're going to have something to look forward to by the end of the season Is here. Is that really something to look forward to, though? Although Tucker's got a great voice, so maybe that. I yeah. do. Tucker, Tuck, Tucker we, we don't let him talk mostly because he would sound better than both of us. And, That's exactly uh, right. As such, he will have to carry the tune when we get to that point. But let's uh, let's dig into Week Nine now. And you had briefly mentioned that Denver Indy game, uh, unexpected from my from from my point of view, just because we had talked previously. We had had Alex Kirby on actually a couple weeks ago talking about some of the weaknesses with that Indianapolis team, and. It seemed to me that this was a game in which they still displayed some of those weaknesses. In particular, I think some of the coaching decisions were uh, a little confusing to me, and, and certainly the inconsistency was still there, but they did manage to pull off a win. Yeah, and a really nice win for them, but they got a bit of help, I think, from Denver. I mean, Denver, they had eight penalties in this game, a couple of big ones. There was a personal foul early on T.J. Ward on a hit on T.Y. Hilton that gave them the Colts 15 extra yards. And, of course, the Tlaib personal foul penalty late in the game that kind of helped Indianapolis seal this win. So I think the Colts got a little bit of help. But looking at the tape, they did they did some nice things offensively, getting the ball, spreading it around a bit, doing some stuff both down the field and then some shorter routes underneath. So maybe signs of life from Indianapolis. It's still kind of early to see if it's just a one-off or if they're going to be able to sustain this now. How were they able to uh... – I guess, first of all, somewhat negate the Denver pass rush. Obviously, Denver was still in the backfield, but at least they were able to get passes off. And, and, and more importantly, Denver, we, we've, we've thought of them as having a pretty decent secondary led by Tlaib there. And it, it seemed to me that you did have a, a number of receivers that were fairly open throughout this game for Indianapolis. Right. And, you know, we can return to one of our friends, the Mills concept. I think we talked about this last week. That yeah. was, they used it, they caught Denver in cover four, and that's typically, you know, a cover four quarters beater. Uh, T.Y. Hilton ran the post. The, the play side safety came forward on the dig route from the tight end. And Luck had enough time to be able to make a play downfield for a long throw and touchdown. Uh, there were times when they caught Denver in man coverage, but, you know, the early play we talked about with T.Y. Hilton, he was able to be beat Chris Harris at the line of scrimmage on a jam attempt and then get open down the field. So part of it, it was it looked like Luck was able to, even the times when Denver brought pressure, Luck was able to get the ball out quickly enough. And then on the other side of the ball, pressure definitely played an influence. Indianapolis getting pressure on Peyton Manning, especially in the two interceptions. 
Yeah, and and let's dig into Peyton Manning here because we had talked, I think it was maybe about three weeks ago, about the struggles that Peyton Manning had had during the first five or six games of the season. And he came out, and I think, right, rightly or wrongly, a lot of people looked at his performance a couple weeks ago then, or rather last weekend, against Green Bay and said, no, everyone was making a big deal about nothing. But some of those early season issues crept up in this Indianapolis game again. Yeah, I, I think so. But again, it comes back to getting pressure on the quarterback. I think for the most part, Manning looked pretty good in this game. You yep. know, it wasn't your typical Peyton Manning performance. The two interceptions, again, the first one, um, he got pressure on. I think it was David Perry got some interior pressure. Oh, that was the second one that Perry got some interior pressure and Peyton couldn't really step into the throw and the defensive back made a great play on the ball. The first interception was on a drive concept, the shallow route underneath, and Owen Daniels on a deep dig route. And um, it was Zach Kerr, the nose tackle, who got some pressure in Manning's face. He couldn't really step into the throw. The throw was high and behind Daniels for an interception. Other than those two mistakes, I mean, I think he played a fairly decent game, but when it comes down to it, those two mistakes really hurt them. Yeah, and I, I think that I tend to agree with you there. And uh, definitely, un, un, unfortunately for Denver, first loss of the season here. And, and you could almost make the case that it's not bad to get a loss uh, at this point in the season because otherwise that pressure of the undefeated season uh, could, you know, it, it can be something that wears on a team as you go here. So definitely an unexpected result for, uh, for myself at least, but uh, it is in the books now, and Denver now has joined the ranks uh, of teams with losses in the NFL. Only three teams remain unbeaten now. We are going to now move over to our first guest, and that is Danny Kelly here to, do- here to join us today and talking about the Seahawks. You can follow Danny on Twitter. His handle is at Field Goals. And, Danny, we certainly appreciate having you on today. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Danny, we've uh, we've been talking a little bit about the Seahawks in the first quarter of the season when I think a lot of people uh, probably wrongly jumped to the conclusion that this team you know, had some, some serious issues and wasn't going to be able uh, to compete this year. And, and clearly, look, they, they've got some things they have to work through on offense, but I think a lot of the initial fears that the defense was potentially uh, weakened have kind of fallen by the wayside. Now, that defense still seems to be uh, one of the strongest in the league here. Yeah, I think, you know, they had a couple of really tough matchups early on that they didn't do so well with, and obviously having Cam Chancellor out was a big deal. Um, you know, he, he came back and, and kind of got guys on the on the same page again, um, and he just kind of brings that presence, and so that, that was really huge for him. He's, he's the emotional leader of the, of the team. I've kind of compared him a little bit to, uh, the, he's like the Ray Lewis of the defense in terms of that emotional tone setter. Um, so he so he was a big addition to get back, and they kind of started going in the right direction. Obviously, they had a few games where they they blew fourth quarter leads, but um, they seem to be on the right the right track now. The, the last two fourth quarters, they've given up a total of seven yards combined. So um, that's obviously a good way to finish the last two games. Can you talk a little bit about some of the changes that have happened on defense? Uh, obviously, we have a new defensive coordinator in there this year. Uh, and, and maybe it just was a little bit of an adjustment over those first few weeks. Are you seeing anything schematically or tactically that has been an adjustment from previous years? Yeah, the one thing that, that's changed a little bit, and, and they've done this a little bit in the past, but they're, they're going to it a little more, is they're letting uh, Richard Sherman travel with some of the top receivers they're facing, so that's been a big adjustment. He's also played in the slot a little bit, um, so he's really showing his value in terms of guy who can play in all you know pretty much all three spots as a corner and he's he's done really well so far and that's the big thing and just going back to the first part of the year you know greg cosell was talking about this a while ago um they they were doing a little bit more stuff on defense they're running a little bit more exotic coverages doing cover two um you know kind of trying to change things up a little bit and that might have been chris richard trying to put his brand on things um, I think over the last couple of games, though, they've switched it back to just more basic cover three stuff, just basically lining up. They're, they're doing their zone and their man cover three, have uh, Earl Thomas back in the, the middle third and kind of just do their thing. They, they've gotten, I think they've gone back to being a little more simple on defense, which has kind of worked for them really well lately. And, and they're blitzing a little bit less, just trying to get pressure with their front four. And obviously Michael Bennett and Cliff Averill have done really well at that lately. So, um, I think what they've done 
you know, over the first couple of games, I think they tried to be a little bit more complex. And I think over the last two games, they've decided to kind of get back to their roots and, and just be, you know, line up and, and, and beat be the team across from them. Danny, you just mentioned Michael Bennett. You actually this week named him the defensive MVP for this team so far. How important has he been to that defense? Yeah, he's just so hard to scheme for, I think, as a, uh, for an opposing coordinator. Um, he moves all around the line. Obviously, he can play inside or outside. They line him up on the guard or sometimes the tackle. And then putting him next to Cliff Averill uh, in, in obvious passing situations is just really, really hard to, to uh, defend those two guys in terms of line up and keep them from getting to the quarterback so he he's really big and um a lot of the success of the a legion of boom has is that the seahawks are you know really good at getting to the quarterback over the last couple of years um statistically obviously their stack numbers aren't super high but they've been good at getting pressures hits and hurries um and so the, the kind of rallying call that the last couple of coordinators had for the seahawks is um move the quarterback off the spot affect them Affecting the quarterback is like a big deal, and so Michael Bennett's really, really good at that. He he's good at collapsing the pocket. Um, you know, he's he's like Aaron Donald in the fact that he's really quick off the snap and kind of can just beat a guy in front of him really quickly. And so a lot of times that will mean the opposing quarterback will have to kind of scramble or reset the pocket, and and that affects them and and the timing and everything. So that's a big part of their defense, and that's a huge factor for them because I think you know if you give a quarterback too much time. They can pretty much pick apart any defense. It's just a matter of time. So really getting hurries on the quarterback has been been huge for the Seahawks, and, and Michael Bennett is one of the best in the league at that. Switching to the other side of the ball for a second, a concern about Seattle coming into the year was the offensive line. And what have you seen so far from the offensive line? Is it still kind of a concern for you, or have you seen signs that they're starting to grow and become a more cohesive unit? Yeah, I mean, it, it started out really, really poorly. Obviously, they, they've given up um, – I think they're around the league worst in terms of giving up sacks right now. Um, you know, they had three guys playing at new positions. Justin Britt went from right tackle to left guard. They had uh, Drew Nowak, who had had an NFL start before he started at center, and then Gary Gilliam, who hadn't had a start in the NFL before he's starting at right tackle. Um, so they expected growing pains, and they definitely had those. I think, um, you know, they, they kind of struggled in both the run game and in the pass protection game. So it was it was a real struggle for them. But the good news is um, Justin Britt, who had a really, really slow start, has kind of picked it up in the last couple of weeks. He's done really well in run blocking. He's, he's improved his pass blocking. They didn't, um, you know, they, they've done a lot better job of protecting Russell Wilson over the last two games. And so that's huge. And, and that progress hopefully will carry on into the second part of the season because, you know, when, when Wilson gets protection, he can really slice some, slice some teams up. But, um they're still young, and I think there's still going to be issues going forward. I think, you know, you can't necessarily just fix it overnight, and I think um, it's going to continue to probably be their their biggest um, their biggest hole as a team in terms of depth and, and talent. I think their offensive line is still the biggest issue, but uh, the good news is they've kind of been trending in the right direction. So that's like the one big thing they really need to improve on in the second, second half of the year, I think, though. So. Danny, big game coming up uh, against the Arizona Cardinals. Divisional game, a lot of importance here, especially with the Cardinals coming off. Uh, you know, really a uh, you know pretty, I, I think, disappointing couple of weeks here where they've regressed a mm-hmm. little bit. What do you expect to see from the Seahawks? What do you need to see from them in this game in order to start to uh, potentially look to take control of that division? Well, I think, you know, with a team like the Cardinals who can score in bunches, um, the Seahawks really need to improve in the red zone. That's the big thing for them right now. Uh, they are last in the NFL right now in, in red zone conversion percentage in terms of converting their red zone trips into touchdowns. I think they're at 29% or so. Um, and if they continue at that pace, it would be one of the worst marks in like five years, too, I heard. Yep. So that gives you an idea of how bad they've been in the red zone. It's just um, there's, a, there's a number of factors going into it. One, it's just... Uh, very conservative in terms of they do a lot of the run-run pass thing once they get to the red zone. Uh, they want to take the points. It's kind of Pete Carroll's conservative nature. Um, you know, they just haven't done a very good job of running the ball in the red zone. Russell Wilson's really struggled to pass the ball in the red zone. So it's, it's, a, it's a combination of a lot of things. Um, but they need to get Jimmy Graham really involved in the second half, I think, in, in that area. I think overall they've done a good job of getting him involved in the offense and kind of 
you know, having that evolution in their offense. But um, the red zone is a big thing. And against the Cardinals, you know, they're obviously a really multiple attacking defense where they, they send guys from all different angles and um, it can be really confusing for a quarterback. So this is going to be a really big test for them in that uh, right off the bat. So um, they've done well against the Cardinals at home, but um, obviously they're a really tough team. They're the kind of the team to be in the NFC West right now. Um, so this will give you a really good idea kind of what the Seahawks are, I think. If they can't if they can't handle the Cardinals at home this week, it's going to be kind of a bad sign for them going forward. But if they can, then I think that's obviously, you know, a good – you know, that's a huge jump-off point for them into the second half of the season. Very good. Well, Danny, we're going to let you go now, but uh, we certainly appreciate the insight here, and uh, thanks again for coming on with us today. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. That's Danny Kelly. You can follow him on Twitter, at Field Goals. You can also uh, visit his site at fieldgoals.com, and it is, I think, uh, one of the best resources out there for Seahawks information. They do a great job, actually, breaking down uh, anything from tactics to uh, you know some of the, the nitty-gritty that goes on in the trenches. Re- really great site, and I think you'll agree, Mark. Yeah, I, I love that site. I mean, I basically learned about the zone blocking scheme from reading some of Danny's work over at Field Goal, so I, I would definitely recommend people check out his stuff. Yeah, he's, he's a great follow on Twitter as well. Uh, again, his handle is at Field Goals. And we're going to move now into, as always, our favorite segment of the week, and this comes from another one of the big games from last week, but we are talking about nothing else but the Harry Stamper all-go offensive play of the week. Brought to you once again by NASA, and Mark, take it away. That's right. This week it's brought to you, as always, by NASA, the fine folks over there. But remember, at NASA, they're only watching 3% of that big-ass sky. Now, Chuck, we're talking again about this Green Bay-Carolina game here, and you know, obviously Green Bay coming off the loss last week to Denver. Now they have to go on the road again and take on the Panthers, another undefeated team. And, you know, that game... The scoreline kind of shocked me early looking at that. Carolina got out to a big lead, and in part, yeah. um, this play that we're going to talk about was played a huge role in that. It's right before the halftime, and um, Cam Newton actually hits Corey Brown on a 39-yard go route for a touchdown with something like 41 seconds left in the half. Um, it's just a simple straight go route against cover one. Um, what, what I really like and what stood out to me watching this play is – We've talked about the development of some quarterbacks on this show, like Teddy Bridgewater, like Derek Carr, but Cam Newton, he's been talked about a lot. You see it on Twitter. There was some talk recently about how he and Colin Kaepernick are putting up similar seasons. Yeah. But this play stands out because Green Bay shows, you know, they're in a 4-2-5 nickel, but they show a little bit of a def- different blitz scheme. They run both linebackers on a cross stunt through, you know, the opposite A gap, which is kind of standard. They bring the um, strong safety down on a blitz off the edge, also kind of standard, but they drop both defensive ends into underneath zones, even though they're playing cover one. They're, they're called holes where they're just looking for backs out of the backfield. Yep. Newton doesn't panic. He's got uh, Greg Olson and uh, fullback Michael Tolbert in the backfield with him, trusts the blocking up front. And not only that here, but if you watch it, there's a piece up on inside the pylon right now that shows you how he looks the free safety off. Ha-ha, Clinton Dix. He starts to play on the hash mark, uh, shaded towards the slot side of the field. Newton takes a snap and opens up and looks to his right, moves Clinton Dix off the hash mark towards the weak side of the field and then hits Brown on a deep go route for the touchdown. It was just a great job. Gave them a 27-7 lead right before the halftime, and then they kind of went on to cruise a little bit in the second half but still earned the big win. Yeah, and, and I want to spin back to something that you mentioned there about having the uh, the protection was in place there where he did have uh, both the back and the tight end in protection for him. How much of that do you think is due to Newton being able to recognize or at least have an idea of what's coming back based on Green Bay's look, and get the protection aligned in such a way uh, that he is really setting himself up for success there. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about this play is he shifts Olsen into the backfield before the play. Olsen initially starts in a tight end trips to the left. Newton shifts him back into the backfield. Now, Green Bay is just showing their base 4-2-5 nickel in kind of a cover two look with the safety that ends up blitzing. He's kind of, you know, like 10 or 12 yards off the line of scrimmage. Now, if Newton saw that look, 
knew what blitz was going to come and then shifted Olsen back into the backfield, that's really impressive because you're just seeing a base cover two shell. But if you did the film study to know that that was coming and made that adjustment, that's really impressive. Do I know that he did that? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of those things it is, you know, it's kind of always hard to think about how a quarterback or how any of these players really evaluate a situation and respond to a situation. We'd like to think, that we could look at something like that and know for sure, but we really don't. I mean, yep. it could just have been something simple as this was the way that the play was designed. They were going to have him start there and shift back into the backfield. Or maybe Newton really did see that that blitz was coming. We just don't know. If he did, my hat's completely off to him because that's a very impressive piece of pre-snap recognition if that's what he indeed saw. What'd but again, I just don't know. What did you see from Newton over the course of the rest of the game? I mean, it's, uh, you know, obviously you mentioned that the, the, uh, the Panthers were able – to put up pretty significant number of points in a pretty short period of time here against the Packers. What did you see from Newton uh, across some other plays? Right. I mean, they got off to the early start. You know, they got the big lead at the half, the 20-point lead at halftime, and did some good things in the passing game. They struggled a little bit in the second half. Um, Newton ended up only completing 15 of 30 passes for just under 300 yards. Kind of missed some throws in the second half. Green Bay showed a little bit of different stuff from the first half to the second half. I think they made some decent halftime adjustments defensively to kind of slow down what Carolina was doing. But still, another, I think, solid performance overall from Cam Newton. Again, this is a team now, there were concerns about what offensive weapons he had with the loss of Benjamin uh, in the preseason. Uh, Funches had a big catch early in this game. Maybe they're bringing him along a little bit more, so... You know, while they did tail off a little bit offensively in the second half, still just an overall solid performance on a team that's now 8-0 and right now. And yep. they've got a pretty easy schedule, I think, coming up. I mean, I don't think that the next team they play with a record above 500 isn't until December, and that's when they play Atlanta. Yeah, they've got a couple games against Atlanta in the uh, last quarter of their schedule, I believe. But other than that, there's not a, there's not a, not a ton of tough teams on their schedule. So they do have, uh, I don't want to say, it's always early to say they have a shot at being undefeated, but they uh, clearly, look, they're still 8-0 right now, something that you do have to talk about. Uh, we're going to move over now to one of our weekly segments, uh, again, something we do every week here, and that is discussing the Inside the Pylon Glossary. And this is a fully annotated, uh, fully uh, fully described with visuals as well as uh, you know full descriptions of all the terms in this glossary. It's put together by the folks here at InsideThePylon.com as well as in cooperation with the Scouting Academy, which is a service run by Dan Hatman for folks that are interested in becoming scouts either at the pro, college, or high school level. And the term we're talking about this week, Mark, is option route. And this doesn't refer to uh, what we typically hear when we talk about an option play necessarily, but rather this is a specific type of route uh, that receivers run and that offenses implement uh, in a number of different cases. Yeah, and it's it's something you usually see from, you think, slot receiver Julian Edelman types um, running underneath the routes. They'll run at a six-yard or four-yard stem vertically, and then they literally just have the option of, what they do next and you know a general kind of rule of thumb is sit versus zone run versus man so when you reach that six yard or four yard depth you either see or sometimes you just feel that underneath coverage and if you see a defender breaking to you on man coverage and a man assignment then you break to the sideline and just run away from him. Make Get yourself open, make yourself available for the quarterback. If you see zone where guys are kind of dropping into underneath hook zones, just sit down, try to find a little soft area in between zone coverage defenders, and again, make yourself available for the quarterback to receive the football. It's really something the teams put in kind of, you know, sometimes when you have, a, as a quarterback, a progression read and you're looking, you know, one way versus man coverage, another way versus zone coverage, Teams were able to kind of roll coverages to cover slot receivers that were running quick curls. They would just sit a man defender on them. So teams would implement this option route scheme to say, look, okay, now if a team's just going to sit in man coverage underneath all the time, let's not just run curl routes over there and have these plays covered and have our quarterback have to throw the ball away. Let's add in a little extra element, a little extra wrinkle, trust that the receivers can read coverages just like any other player on the field, let them f- see the defender, and if they see a man coverage scheme, run away from it. If they see zone still, just squat down, find a soft little area, 
make yourself a target. Mark, just quickly, I know we have a guest coming up uh, in just a minute here, but is is this the reason also that you'll occasionally see uh, a quarterback throw a pass where there's no one in the area just because the quarterback and the receiver made different reads on that option route? Right, yeah, that's something that you see a lot, not just on option routes kind of underneath, but on a lot of plays they incorporate, for example, if you're the outside receiver and you're supposed to run a five-yard curl route, for example, and yep. you see a rolled-up press corner on you, that's usually an automatic adjustment to a go route. I mean, that's something we, we ran in college. Yep. Where you see sometimes some confusion is the difference between cover one, cover three, and how some teams like the Seahawks, like we just had Danny on, play cover three but with the corners pressed up. Yep. The qu- quarterback might see that, read cover three, and stay with the five-yard hitch route, which is a good route against cover three because that corner is going to be dropping deep. Yep. Wide receiver sees a guy in his face, thinks, oh, this is press. This is cover one, cover two. He runs the go route, and then the ball gets thrown to the sideline on the hitch route. Nobody's there to catch it. Uh, the Patriots actually had this with Brady and Edelman in an article I wrote last year. There was a mix-up on that exact formation. Yeah, and so uh, definitely if you, if you ever wonder about what that is in uh, – you know, in an NFL game where you see a quarterback just throw that pass and no one's there at all. Mark just gave you a pretty good answer, so I'd suggest that you uh, take a look at that next time you see that happen in a game. We do now have our next guest on the line, and it is Andy Guider from the Q5.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at AndyGuider17. And Andy, I know we had some uh, tech issues the last time. Everything squared away now, though? Everything's great. Like, I appreciate you having me again. Thank you. That is outstanding. We're happy to have you on here. And I know we did get cut short a little bit the last time, so I wanted to make sure that we could kind of start from the top again and just discuss a little bit, quick little you know, couple-minute summary about the game maps that you're uh, creating, what they represent uh, visually, and what that can tell us about a, uh, a game or, or, a, or a string of games even. Well, what the Q5 was really created was to, uh, you know, evaluate and graphically display both drive and play-by-play data. And really the thing that I tried to do was through the lens of performance, which is obviously, a, you know, a subjective lens, but, you know, a little bit with my background in coaching, you know, and then my ability to kind of tie those things into my uh, my research and computer programming background, you know, these these game maps really resulted, and it's meant to be a, a visual time history, you know, of the exact sequence of a game, you know, and, and really a strong genesis for wanting to do this was to try and look at these non-scoring drives, you know, because over half the drives in a game, you know, result in no points. You know, so, and again, those are, again, beyond turnovers. Um, you know, what, what are, you know, what are teams really doing with the football? So that was my, you know, my, my whole idea was to try and, again, create something that was of a visual nature because, you know, I didn't just want to create another table of numbers. Um, those, those numbers are sitting behind all those graphics, but, you know, creating something that was visual and, you know, enjoyable to look at, uh, it really would be more meaningful in the long run. When you go and look through some of the recent weeks that we've had here, and in particular, you know, any of the last couple, I think, what types of stories have you seen displayed visually in these game maps that, that have really kind of gotten to the heart of why maybe a game went a certain way? Are there any examples that you can give us to help make that a little clearer? Well, you know, a big one is, um, you know, obviously you're trying to separate uh, what's going on on the scoreboard, you know, from what's going on in drive performance. So, what you know, something very interesting, you know, is, is again, is tracking um, starting field position. Yep. And seeing where, you know, where teams are. You know, and the way I look at it is, you know, again, you're not a, you're not a victim of your of your starting field position. I mean, you you work, you earn that starting field position, both in the positive and the negative sense. So, you know, teams you know, I did a little bit with, um, you know, the the best teams, the teams that are starting their offenses start with less yards to go as opposed to their defenses. You know, those, those best teams, this can be no surprise, but, it's, you know, teams like New England and Cincinnati are at a plus 12-yard, you know, surplus. You know, they, they have to go 12 less yards on average every drive than their opponent. You know, on the other side, and it's actually at about, it's about minus 11, minus 12, or 
you know, the Chargers in Detroit, um, they're, you know, they're consistently having to go further. Um, so, you know, understanding how that field position then works into, uh, you know, a team's ability to perform, basically the pressure that's put on a team. You know, you're, you're, you're tracking the show of strength and a team's reaction to it. Uh, and, it, you know, it's, it's one of their games where, you know, they come in all shapes and sizes. You know, I can, I can grab out uh, neat things. I can grab out games that have exactly the same score. And you can show games where, you know, there was a little bit of an underdog kind of making an, an initial charge, you know, and then a, a stronger team taking over uh, as the game progresses. There are games that are just completely back and forth. You know, one team scoring or not even scoring, but again, just how they move the football, uh, how a team is performing, you know, again, in a, in a time history format. So it's, it is interesting to see how a team might be able to correct something uh, that isn't going well. But, it's you know, it's hard. It's hard to kind of change momentum in a game. But, again, there, there are certain plays that will do that also. And you've got a great full-part series up right now about – Alejandro, uh, Alejandro Villanueva, who was a 6'9", 278-280-pound offensive lineman at West Point that then his senior year moved to wide receiver where you were his position coach. It's a great series. I recommend people check it out. Why was the decision made to move him to wide out for his senior year? Well, when we, uh, you know, when we arrived, that was, our, that was our first season back in 09, and uh, you know, we we were going to run. You know, we were going to go back and run triple option there. So, you know, we knew from a uh, you know from a matchup point of view. You know, if you can get a physical mismatch out there at the wide receiver position, you you'll have a chance to win quite a bit. We I coached Ramsey's Barton, who was a, ended up being a you know a third round draft pick for the for the Giants. You know, and, and basically, it's, in that offense, it's impossible. It's, it's really impossible to get help out. Uh, to somebody guarding uh, a receiver, again, you can do it, but you're going to be short somebody. You're going to be short a tackler somewhere. So, uh, you know, with with that in mind, that was it was kind of the the idea of the head coach Rich Ellerson to to look at moving him. And once we started, you know, it really it was really uh, quite an experience for me. You know, again, just trying to trying to take change my perspective and look at it from you know from Ali's point of view. You know. He, kind of goes from playing the game and, you know, relative obscurity inside there, you know, his hand on the ground, all of a sudden just standing up, you know, and, and sort of showing your number. I mean, even even just, you know, just that sort of, that change, um, you know, was, was the first thing we tackled. And then, I mean, he's an extremely good athlete. Um, and, uh, you know, you can kind of limit uh, the amount of space the receiver plays in. We kept him over there to the boundary, uh, you know, where, again, where it was – less places for the defender to go run, you know, run away from him. Um, but that was, you know, it was a, it was a very good experience, a very, very neat experience, very unique and, and happy to be a part of that. Um, a very special part of my coaching career. And if someone is interested in looking at your game maps, the best place for them to go is over to the Q5.com. Is that right? That's exactly where they are. And, uh, you know, the Q5 holds those in a, in a way that, I'm trying to create some infrastructure where there's some the sortability. You know, you can look at at team performance over multiple years. I got about four years of NFL data, so you get a chance to see some, you know, again performance trends offensively, defensively, uh, and also uh, you can sort by strongest performance. Uh, perhaps lucky to win. You know, a team that might win without performing well by my metric. Um, so those are all captured there, and again, meant to try and create something that that is you know user friendly um, and and really in, sort of invites you uh, to explore the data without again without putting a, just a matrix of numbers in front of you. That was a that was a big big piece of what I was trying to do, um, and we were able to, to to do some make some good inroads there. Um, but it, it's uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a fun but challenging experience. Very good. Well, Andy, appreciate you coming on with us today, and we'll definitely have you on later on in the year as well to uh, continue to go into more detail on this. I look forward to that, and I'll be looking forward to tying this into draft data uh, when the time is right as well. Yeah, definitely. That will be uh, that'll be fascinating to look at, and certainly appreciate you again, and we'll catch up with you soon.
I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Absolutely. Dr. Andy Guider there. And you can view all of his research again on the Q5.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at AndyGuider17. And, Mark, it's, it's interesting because I've been looking through just some of the uh, the recent games. In particular, I pulled out the Colts just because we were talking about them earlier. Right. And what I find fascinating in looking at the Colts over this year, the one constant that they've had, aside from pretty much two games here, is, and no surprise to anyone who's been looking at the Colts over the last couple of years, their defense has been underperforming on drives, even with the improvements they've made. Okay? and. Wow, which is probably a little surprising when you look at how you know how this season's gone. You say, well, I thought their defense was improved a little bit. But on just about every single game, except for their Week 2 game against the uh, Jets, which they actually lost, their defense was quite strong there, believe it or not. And if you go to the Week 6 game against New England, defense was improved there as well. But pretty much across the board, other than that, they have been a relatively inefficient defense uh, from week to week here. Right, and that's really interesting. I mean, when you think about some of the head scratching decisions that you know the Grigson regime made, they drafted Philip Dorsett early when it looked like they needed to address the defense. I know they got the guys in the third and the fifth round, the two guys from Stanford, but you know we thought a little bit of the conventional wisdom in this year so far was that the defense had been playing well. But I think that's a reason why what Andy's doing it brings a very fresh, new, and very brilliant perspective into you know how the game is played out on the field because it kind of that in particular flies a little bit in the face of what we've thought the conventional wisdom was we think oh the defense is improving but in fact it's a defense that might have let the Colts down on a couple of these games yeah and, and I think let's uh you know I'm gonna go take a look at a couple other teams we'll take a look at the Panthers here because we had talked about them a little bit earlier and What's interesting, and in, in I'm just taking a quick visual look across the data here, and we talked earlier about the growth of Cam Newton, and one thing that I consistently see with the Panthers is we talk about the strength of their defense quite a bit, but their offense is actually more consistent than their defense from week to week right now, despite that not being the way a lot of people are thinking about that team. What's been a, in looking at that? I don't know if you can tell quickly enough. Is there a week in which that defense kind of underperformed? Is there a specific game? Uh, let's take a look. The third game of the year against uh, Carolina against New Orleans. Okay, the defense uh, was pretty weak in the first half. It looks like pretty much underperforming for much of the first half, settling in a little bit in the second, and looking fairly average at that point. Uh, you know, continuing along there, if we look at uh, the game against Carolina against Seattle. Okay, this was actually a game where both the defense and offense both displayed below average efficiency, and yet they still ended up coming out on top here. You compare that to some of the other wins that they've had, and for example, the uh, the week four game, Carolina against Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay ended up giving up uh, or scoring 23 points. Carolina put up 37, and their defense was significantly above average in their conversion rates on just about every down there. So. It's, it's kind of fascinating to look at and see the visual representation because it tells you, uh, you know, kind of really what's going on, I think, in an easy-to-digest format for a lot of people. So we do now have our uh, third guest of the show uh, on the line here, and we are proud to be joined by Bill Carroll here. And uh, Bill is one of my favorite follows on Twitter, actually. I think he has probably some of the best all-around information for both pro and college football. And so very happy to have him on with us today. And uh, Bill, welcome on to our podcast. Well, it's... uh... It's been a struggle, but we finally got it together, so I'm glad to finally be here. We, we certainly did, and I know your particular area of expertise, you like to really look uh, at scouting, and in particular, trying to dispel some of the myths around scouting, both from really how I think the average person looks at both pro and college scouting and the transition between those two areas, and what actual scouts are trying to do. And I think a good place to start would just be to give our listeners a little bit of a summary of what you're, what really you're trying to do. Sure. Uh, I was blessed, lucky, whatever term you want to use, to be a really way below average athlete, but passionate <laughs> athlete. So uh, I hung around sports a lot. And I mean, even at, I remember having a moment at the age of six. I had the great opportunity to play my first football of my life 
in Chapel, North Carolina, and one of my teammates was Clarkson Hines, who went on later to be an All-American wide receiver at Duke. And he and I were defensive ends and opposite ends of the line. And I would look at him and look at me and look at him and say, even at six, wow, there's something different here. You know? <laughs> so, uh, I, from that moment, it was like, what makes them them and makes us us? Because that's what scouting comes down to. How do you recognize that special one in a whatever thousand human being it takes to play college, and then especially pro football, where the you know the filters get even finer. It's a combination of things that I think we underestimate how difficult it is. You're going to miss a lot because it's like you know if you're a diamond, you're digging for diamonds, you're going to go through a lot of shale, you know, before you find a diamond. It's the same thing with football players. Ninety-nine point whatever percentage, nine mini nines before you get two guys who are actually good enough to play pro football. Bill, why, so, do, you, why do you think we're so yeah. bad at identifying talent? And, and maybe we're not as bad as I think we are, but it seems like we always well, have these issues identifying talent. Here's the things it comes down to. One, it's plain old prejudice. Let's just admit it. We all have prejudices. It's one of those things that we have to admit, and you won't get better as a person, or, and you won't get better as a scout. You don't admit, I have I come into this with prejudices. The things I like and things I don't like. Yep. There are there are teams that say, "Hey, if you're not six foot five, we might look at you as a quarterback, but we really would like you to be six foot five. And if you're much less than six foot five, we really are not very interested." Now that may be slowly being changed, but there's still teams that would really prefer to be six foot five. All other things being equal, could you please be six foot five? Now there are there are statistical reasons. And things that have done to show you that six or five is kind of the sweet spot. Much taller than that, you start to run into problems. And, you know, if you get significantly shorter than that, you have to be exceptional in other things to make up for it. So sometimes there's a, like many other prejudices, there's a root in something real. But a lot of our prejudices mean no thing. They're just, there's nothing to them. They're just there because they're there. We have to get past them. So arm length is a perfect example. There are positions where arm length is certainly helpful, and you have to have a certain threshold. I mean, you can't have, you know, pterodactyl arms. I'm not pterodactyl, sorry. Oh, wait, uh, T-Rex arms. They love pterodactyl arms. Uh, there's a threshold. But frankly, as long as you meet a certain threshold, the studies have shown that at, say, offensive tackle, we all think you need to be, you know, this ludicrous and long-arm freak. Beyond a certain threshold, it's all gravy. I mean, it's great that you have long arms, but if your arms are beyond a certain threshold, it's fine, in essence. And we have a tendency to say, well, this guy's better because his arms are three-quarters of an inch or three-eighths of an inch or a half an inch longer. If you're a good enough athlete, you're going to make up that happen. So we should probably pay attention to other things uh, that really have, are more impactful in how well a player performs. We want, what would you want to do is you want to carve away the fat. The fat can be your own fat if you bring it with you. Very often, like I said, your own prejudice. But sometimes the fat can be something people throw at you. Statistical analysis is important, but it can be fat, too. You have to. Um, Jim Coburn's been incredibly helpful to me, and if you aren't following Jim Coburn, J.M. Coburn 1, you should. Uh, he and Math Bomb are a couple, and there's a couple other guys out there who really do a great job of not just using numbers, but telling you what they mean and which ones mean nothing. Sometimes the numbers don't mean anything. Hey, there are certain positions and certain places where the numbers, certain numbers, just don't mean anything. But you prefer to have certain things, and sometimes, like I said, the preference is sometimes rooted in something real. So what I try to do is I try to gather a lot of information, just like all of us do. And I try to look at my prejudices. I say, what are my prejudices? I try to be as honest as I can about that. I have a tendency to like this, but not that. I have a tendency to like this, but not that. And then I say, I talk to my numbers guys. I talk to other people say, let's look at, hey, can you tell me if over the past X number of years, if this actually matters? Hey, I like this. Okay, well, if a guy runs a this three cone and he's at least five foot ten, does that actually mean something at this position? At say slot receiver, it's shorter, better than taller, right? Because we have a tendency to not like a certain amount of height in running backs, right? We we love height and length and certain things. We say, oh, gosh, he's six foot three and a half. Mm. Now there be some great six foot three running backs. <laughs> you know, Eddie George was a heck of a running back. Uh, O.J. Simpson was six two and a half. Uh, Peterson six one and a half. I mean, there's, there's good tall running backs. We worry about the target area. Pad level can make up for that. You know how to make yourself small, no matter how tall you are, because there's also guys who are not that tall but are bad at lowering their pad level. So there's ways to – you have to sh- shift out. It's, it's a process of shifting. And the last thing I'll say, and I didn't mean to say as much as I did, 
I like to go back and look at my stuff from years ago and see, am I getting better? Am I getting worse? What was I right about? What was I wrong about? For me, it's always Andre Woodson, right? Whenever I get super excited about a quarterback, I have to Andre Woodson myself. Um, after Andre Woodson proceeded to absolutely carve up LSU in that game where he leaves them back on this improbable comeback, and just, this is an LSU that had seven guys drafted that year, that draft year off their defense, right? This is a loaded LSU defense. He just dissects them. He's a, quote, as, as uh, Dilfer would say, a quarterback surgeon, right? Just takes them apart. And that's it. I already liked him, and now I'm in love. This is all I can talk about. I see him when I go to sleep at night. I wake up thinking of Andre Woodson. And so people are like, Matt Ryan, Matt Ryan. Yeah, Matt Ryan's nice, but I mean, he's Andre Woodson, right? So I learned from that two things. One is there were some mechanical things that I was overlooking about Andre Woodson. And then two, they have a very, and have always, not always, but they've had different systems at Kentucky, but for whatever reason, they never asked the quarterback to do a certain amount of things. So he's doing a lot of things in the passing game, but he never had anything to do with protection. So the center was doing all the protections and, and you know, line coaches, whatever. So he did, there are things that he hadn't done. Not that that always means a huge red flag, but I, I missed that in the process. And I'd forgotten to take into account that Matt Ryan, who I was kind of cool on, was playing through a, 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 um, a, what was that? a stress fracture, right? He was playing through a stress fracture. So I was like, man, this kid's you know, not terribly strong, a bad athlete. I forgot to say, okay, he's playing through a stress fracture. So you've got to go back. A lot of people missed on, on Carr because they forgot to look, realize he's playing through and then just coming off a sports hernia. And sports hernia is not a thing that you, even you're playing through it, that you can just look like the same guy. Parts of you aren't functioning the right way when you, I don't want to get to the particulars of a sports hernia, but it's a nasty injury. That's not, okay. Um, I didn't mean to go off so long, but that's, that's sort of my process. Bill, we actually, what you just touched on, I think we've got a real live case sort of playing out, and that's Trevon Boykin, the quarterback down at TCU. Oh, you and I have oh, talked boy. about him. It seems yeah. that he's going to be moving to wide receiver, at least reports are indicating that he will, which <laughs> I've got my feelings on that. What are your thoughts on moving a very good college quarterback who looks to be somebody that could transition to the next level to wide receiver? He's played three positions in his time at TCU, and I have no doubt that he could possibly do it. But in a quarterback-starved universe where you just can't find quarterbacks, are there things he needs to work on? Well, yes. Connor Cook has things he needs to work on. I mean, but no one's talking about moving him to, you know, let's welcome him make him a move tight end. I mean, it's just silly. It's just silly. Let him go out and prove he can't be a quarterback first. I want to see him prove he can't play quarterback before I'm starting to move a guy who clearly has some things you Get some things that you just have. Basic quarterback accuracy. If you can, while on the move, as well as stationary in the pocket, consistently get the ball down the field and hit people in the right place. He's not just throwing the ball kind of in the general area and guys are just making – he does have some guys who make great catches for him, Josh, Josh Dotson amongst them. But a lot of times he's throwing the ball to the proper shoulder. He's throwing the ball to the proper hip. He's throwing the ball, you know, high at certain points to get over the, the, the linebacker and drop it in front of the safety. He's doing some of the things you look for in guys who can play at the next level. Is it a super simplified offense? Yes, I agree. We can't get away from that. But how many guys are running really a tremendously complex, you know, West Coast offense? Two or three in the entire draft class have seen anything remotely close to a pro read. So it's, it's almost a level playing field. Only a few guys deal with pro concepts in their passing game. Is he not as tall as you'd like? Is he, and I'll just say it, is he a little blacker than some people like? That's, that's just a fact. There are people who prefer that a quarterback be six or five and white. Now, they're willing to accept that not all of them can be, but it's a preference. It is, it, and some people will even, off the record, admit that that's their preference. You know, I'm just, I'm getting used to it, some of them will say. I'm trying to adjust to these new quarterbacks. And, you know, that the fact is that if you have, good coaches, great coaches, in fact, who can recognize certain aspects. Okay, mentally and physically tough, good guy, right? He's mentally and physically tough. He's a good person. Those are things, let's not forget that playing quarterback isn't just a, you're not just a ball delivery system. Because if so, Jeff George would be in the Hall of Fame. There's probably never been a better, pure ball delivery system in the history of the game than Jeff George. I was at his pro day. I mean, I'm not kidding when I say hard men wept when they saw the beauty of his ball. I mean, <laughs> it was just something to see. 
It was something to see. People just stood there, jaws agape. Teams jockeyed for position for the chance to draft Jeff George, and they did it for a reason. His ability to simply throw the football. Hard, soft, with touch, with accuracy, with, I mean, all the things, all the check marks, all the ball-throwing arm talent check marks, every single one was checked and with little stars and smiley faces. And, and, and Bill, Bill, yeah. I, I apologize. I yeah, actually right. have to get us out here just because we have sure. to get on to our next I guest. Understand. But you've been absolutely outstanding. We're definitely going to get you on later on this year because I feel like we could do a whole sure. 40 minutes with you and not even scratch the surface. Yeah, you're probably right. I apologize. I'm, I'm by nature long-winded. No, no <laughs> problem at all. Just uh, very quickly, if someone wants to read your work, what's the best place for them to go take a look? Sure. Um, I tweet out a lot of stuff. I write for both FanSpeak, which is www.fanspeak.com and Nuts and Bolts Sports is www.nuts and Bolts and the word and is written out it's not an ampersand or whatever it's andsbolts.com and you can follow me on Twitter the I have two feeds the B Carol B uh, capital B capital C A double R O L L one three eight and eleven Bravo all lowercase is the word eleven not the letter not the number eleven eleven Bravo one thirty eight very Gentlemen, thank you so much. Hey, thanks again for coming thanks, on, Bill. Sir. We'll have you on later on this year, all right? Okay, talk to you soon. All right, that was Bill Carroll, and again, uh, one of the best Twitter follows. He, he pulls stuff from just about everywhere, and as you can tell, he has enough information. to. We're, we're definitely going to have him on for one of our extended podcasts because I think it would be uh, absolutely perfect uh, for him there. Uh, Mark, we do unfortunately have to get out, and uh, I'm gonna. G- There's not really a ton of great games this week, which is nope. good because we don't have time to talk about them. So I'm gonna give you the one good one, and uh, let's let's just do a little pick for this one. Minnesota, Oakland. What do you think? How about this? I got an even better thing for you on that game. That is a Super Bowl preview. Maybe not this year. Maybe not next. But I, those two teams, I really like doing. I think they're going to meet in a Super Bowl sometime in the near future. How about that? I'll put you down for 2018. How about that? That works. Outstanding. We are out for the day. You can follow us on Twitter at IT Pylon. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash inside the pylon. And as always, visit insidethepylon.com every day to make sure you get all of our articles. We are out. We'll see you next week.